You are listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I am Dr. Gil Parat. Today we are talking about anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock. One of the many reasons I like the field of medicine and also like being a writer is that they are both about the story. Some plots are really easy to predict. If a 20-year-old Olympic figure skater has sudden wheezing and lightheadedness at a Chinese restaurant after eating shrimp and a peanut stir-fry, most of us would correctly conclude we are witnessing anaphylaxis. When a nurse calls you on a rainy evening about a 70-year-old lady feeling sudden dyspnea with chest tightness, your mind is usually going to start thinking about pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, fluid overload, aspiration, and the more common plots we see in the hospital. That nurse at that instance may not be thinking about the infectious disease doctor who rounded a few hours earlier and changed the patient's antibiotic for toe osteomyelitis to another class of antibiotics. So you may end up ordering a chest x-ray, EKG, giving aspirin, getting a BTMP, cardiac enzyme, slipping nitro under the tongue. And by the time diagnostic results are back, and even by the time the nurse goes back to check on the patient a few minutes later, there may be a warm dead lady laying in a bed and no butler to blame for the anaphylactic death. It all depends on the story. Now, had the nurse said, I just hung a new antibiotic an hour ago, her skin looks like she has hives, and the patient seems to be wheezing throughout her chest, the destination of your mind would have traveled directly to the land of anaphylaxis, and the patient would likely be alive. And perhaps, just as an obvious side note, we are all very dependent upon one another, and those overly caught up in their social hierarchy status not only have psychological problems they should work on, but it's bad for patient care and possibly your career. As somebody who is both an administrator and a doctor, I can't tell you how many times a doctor has performed poorly because the nursing staff is scared to talk to him in detail because his tolerance to hear the story is deplorable. Listen to the narrative, ask questions when a symptom is as serious as shortness of breath or chest tightness, because it may not fall into the regular categories you are usually thinking about. So, what is the cause of death from anaphylaxis, respiratory obstruction, and or cardiovascular collapse? Only when we recognize this clinical diagnosis can we treat it. It simply isn't something you'll have the time needed to send off lab tests to make the diagnosis. But that's just the prologue. We must first start at the beginning. Let's rewind the story and let's talk about mast cells, because if you don't understand these, you won't understand the basics of anaphylaxis. Mast cells are the main antagonists in this plot. Mast cells are circulating in the blood, right? Actually, no, they are not. Basophils, which have similarities to mast cells, are found in the blood. Basophil degranulation also has a role in anaphylaxis, but you must absolutely understand and appreciate the role of mast cells. Mast cells are indeed present throughout much of the body, but they are really concentrated beneath the skin and mucous membranes of the digestive and respiratory tracts. If you remember that fact, then it makes sense why so many manifestations and symptoms of anaphylaxis are characterized by when mast cells degranulate along the respiratory tract and you get respiratory distress like bronchospasm, wheezing, chest tightness, stridor, and throat constriction, 
when mast cells degranulate along the GI tract, you get gastrointestinal unpleasantness like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal cramping. With mast cells concentrated beneath the skin, there are resulting dermatologic manifestations, particularly urticaria, itching, and angioedema. Another area where mast cells are found is along blood vessels. And as we know, hypotension or shock is one of the biggest feared problems in anaphylaxis. Mast cells are also in the human heart, including along the coronary arteries. So it makes sense anaphylaxis is sometimes confused with more common etiologies of cardiac events. Makes one wonder, when we follow ACLS protocol and the epinephrine does work, sometimes is it because we just treated anaphylaxis? Hmm, did the cardiac arrest happen just after you gave aspirin for the chest pain? Hmm, I think nearly every doctor has the experience of coming into the hospital to round and noticing there is one less patient on the list. And sometimes it is a patient you really are surprised they died overnight. We often justify it in our heads and say, must have been a pulmonary embolism or an arrhythmia or whatever. I think it is wise to heed the words of the textbook titled Allergy Principles and Practice, the fifth edition, when they say that the incidence of anaphylactic death may be underestimated and that a significant proportion of unexplained sudden deaths may be due to anaphylaxis. But I'm prematurely jumping ahead of the early chapters that I first must read or will miss the bigger purpose of the story. Let's talk about immunoglobulin E. Mast cells are covered with immunoglobulin E. IgE is also found in very low levels in the blood, but mostly it is passionately bound to receptors on mast cells. When an antigen, like a peanut protein or penicillin or whatever, binds to IgE, it triggers mast cells to degranulate. Degranulation is defined by Tabor's Medical Dictionary as the release of chemical mediators from preformed storage depots in cells. And when mast cells degranulate, all kinds of powerful vasoactive chemicals are released. And this is referred to as a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Histamine is one of those many substances released in degranulation, and it's a multidimensional character. Histamine dilates blood vessels, sometimes to the point of causing hypotension and shock, but also, somewhat paradoxically, causes smooth muscle constriction, such as in the bronchi and other areas. It can therefore be a multimodality killer, causing hypoxia or hypotension. Also, glandular secretions of mucus happens with the stimulation of certain histamine receptors, which just adds to the myriad of problems. That's not to say that histamine doesn't have mafia friends that can wreak havoc when mast cells degranulate, like tumor necrosis factor, nitrous oxide, bradykinin, but we don't want to focus too much on the minor characters or we'll lose the meaning behind the action. With histamine and its friends, blood vessel dilation is a big part of the problem, but inflammation and vascular permeability are also not trivial issues. The loss of intravascular volume by means of rapid fluid shifts into the extravascular space can be dramatic. 
some sources claim it can be up to 50% of vascular volume lost into the extravascular space in only 10 minutes in certain cases. It should be noted that the intensity of a type 1 allergic reaction is dependent on the number of cells degranulating. If one ninja breaks into my house and I'm ready with my handgun, I feel semi-confident. If 30 ninjas break into my house, the 8 rounds in my handgun will not be helpful. Likewise, the quantity of mast cells degranulating is very important. So let's move on to the treatment of anaphylaxis. We are probably not going to have double-blind trials for anaphylaxis in human beings. Can you imagine trying to enroll a patient into a trial in the middle of anaphylaxis? That would make for a heck of a Monty Python routine or a Saturday Night Live skit. It wouldn't be funny in a real-life situation. And therefore, this is one of those diseases we have to go with our thought leaders and consensus guidelines. What is the only first-line medication for life-threatening anaphylaxis? That hero is epinephrine. Not steroids, not diphenhydramine, they are confined to supporting roles. What are the contraindications to epinephrine in anaphylactic shock? None. Nada. Zero. All right, fine. With maybe one rare exception that I would close the final seconds of this podcast explaining, gotta build suspense for that last paragraph, but for the most part, there are no contraindications. What if a guy is two weeks out from a myocardial infarction with a history of four stents? Still give the epinephrine if he's having a serious anaphylactic reaction, or he will soon be a guy dead two weeks out from his MI. That's not to say you won't cause an arrhythmia, even a rare fatal myocardial infarction with epinephrine, but anaphylaxis is a more deadly disease if you don't try and treat it. Apparently, there is only a single case of myocardial infarction from intramuscular epinephrine reported so far, which was reported in the Annals of Allergy in 1993. Think about how often you are successful in treating myocardial infarction and arrhythmia patients. Now think about how many patients you've seen survive untreated anaphylactic shock. In case I haven't been convincing enough about using epinephrine and using it early, I would like to share a quote from an April 25, 2002, New England Journal of Medicine article titled Peanut Allergy, where they say, and I will quote, surveys of fatal and near-fatal reactions suggest that a delay in the initiation of therapy, such as injectable epinephrine, is associated with a poor prognosis, although about 10% of patients who receive epinephrine still die early. As we know, epinephrine or adrenaline is a catecholamine that potently constricts blood vessels via its alpha-1 adrenergic effects. Therefore, it is counteracting the vasodilation of histamine and reverses hypotension and anaphylaxis, among its many benefits. Epinephrine stimulation of beta-2 receptors bronchodilates, just like we know that other beta agonists we use, such as albuterol and others, also bronchodilate. Want to know something about epinephrine that maybe you already know, but I did not know? Epinephrine also keeps mast cells from degranulating and therefore blocks the release of inflammatory mediators. According to the textbook Kubi Immunology, mast cells have beta-adrenergic receptors. When epinephrine binds to these receptors, 
cyclic AMP is increased in the mast cell, which decreases degranulation. I also double-checked this attribute of epinephrine using the textbook Goodman and Gilman's The Pharmacologic Basis of Therapeutics 11th edition, which confirmed this on page 246, in which they say epinephrine inhibits antigen-induced release of inflammatory mediators from mast cells. So I haven't thought about epinephrine as an anti-inflammatory drug, but it seems to have some of those important properties. What is the dosing of epinephrine to be used? First of all, if you listen to most of my other podcasts, you have heard me say that I do not treat children, and everything I say applies to treatments of adults only. And that is the case for this talk of anaphylaxis as well. The dose in adults using intramuscular or subcutaneous route of epinephrine is a 1-1000 solution at a dose of 0.3 milligrams every 5 to 15 minutes. Some give 0.5 milligrams in severe cases, and I think that's very reasonable. And by the way, epinephrine doesn't work instantly like Narcan does in your opioid overdose patients in which they just arise from the dead in a matter of seconds. Epinephrine may take a few minutes. I've yet to see it needed, but there are scary cases described where you need to use epinephrine drips if anaphylactic shock persists with hypotension and bronchospasm. Here's a really good question. Who should prescribe the epinephrine auto-injector? Anybody that is a good physician, nurse practitioner, or PA after an anaphylactic event. If you are scared and fearful of epinephrine and prefer the patient follow-up with an allergist or their primary care physician for their auto-injector, and that patient goes on to have anaphylaxis, either by a new event or has a biphasic reaction, you should feel remorseful that you were a bad doctor for that patient. Perhaps you can justify the scenario as being an unwilling bystander in the person's death, but even though you only had an undeveloped cameo appearance, it should trouble your conscience. Anaphylaxis is not the common cold. This is a very life-threatening condition. Coumadin makes me uncomfortable, but I prescribe it after a large pulmonary embolism. Lack of comfort in therapies that are essential to maintain life is not an excuse for poor care. There are lots of resources for learning these simple-to-use auto-injectors. A quick Google internet search will give you plenty of sites with videos showing you how to do it. How many auto-injectors should be prescribed? A minimum of two. If the first auto-injector misfires or it wasn't enough epinephrine to do the job, as some people do need repeat doses, it is always nice to have two injectors. Speaking of repeat epinephrine dosing, let me tell you about the biphasic reaction. You know at the end of the movie when you kill the villain and then he comes back to life and attacks one more time before he's ultimately and conclusively killed a second time in a manner that makes sure he won't come back beheading or falling into a big tub of acid or whatever? Well, in the story of anaphylaxis, a minority of patients, there is a biphasic reaction. It is a second episode of anaphylaxis that happens hours after the first treatment. That is the reason we often want to observe these patients in the hospital for about 24 hours. 
biphasic reactions have been described as late as 72 hours after the initial exposure and treatment, though I don't know many doctors who keep their patients in the hospital that long if their patients are feeling totally fine. The consensus guidelines from the United Kingdom say it seems reasonable to watch patients on observation for 8 to 24 hours. Mostly, when biphasic reactions do happen, they occur within 8 hours of the first episode. One source I read said 90% of them happen within 4 hours. If the patient knows or is taught how to auto-inject epinephrine, then you are going to feel more comfortable about the discharge. Let's talk about the second-line drugs for treating anaphylaxis. My source on this mostly comes from the consensus guidelines of the United Kingdom, but also some textbooks and other articles. Antihistamines, a good idea to routinely give, but using them alone isn't going to cut it. You still need the epinephrine, which is the drug you order first. Corticosteroids are also often a good idea, but slow, with an onset of action taking four to six hours. If anaphylaxis patients also have a history of asthma, corticosteroids may be a particularly good benefit in that population. There are some who don't think antihistamines or corticosteroids are worth much in anaphylaxis, despite the consensus guidelines being okay with them. To share just one of those many opinions out there, I will go back to the peanut allergy article from the 2002 New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Hugh Sampson, the author of that article, said, quote, The administration of corticosteroids does not appear to reduce the risk of a biphasic response. A subsequent three-day course of oral prednisone and antihistamine is often recommended, although there are no studies demonstrating that this practice decreases the risk of recurrent symptoms, end quote. And I have read a few sources that feel similar to that. I add that just to give the complete picture, but I still do give steroids and often some diphenhydramine at this point in my practice of medicine. Oxygen, albuterol nebulizers, saline during hypotension are also therapeutic options in the acute setting that we need to utilize. Today, my epilogue will be titled Anaphylaxis Tips and Pearls. The first tip is about venom immunotherapy, which should be strongly considered in patients with a history of anaphylaxis from insect venom. It's worth noting that even if everything is done right and epinephrine is given even early, some people still sometimes die. So we want to prevent the next event of that sting causing a potential fatal reaction. And my source on this is the Journal of American Medical Association, April 16, 1997, in which Dr. Helen Hollingsworth at Boston University School of Medicine explains that venom immunotherapy is more than 97% effective in preventing reactions to subsequent stings. Another source is the January 8th 2001 Archives of Internal Medicine in an article titled Anaphylaxis in the United States, in which they say, and I will quote them, in adults with a history of anaphylaxis caused by hymenoptera sting who do not receive immunotherapy, the risk of anaphylaxis from future stings lies between 30% and 60%, whereas in patients who do receive immunotherapy, the risk is less than 3%. 
Also, venom immunotherapy is generally well tolerated because only 6% of patients develop allergic reactions to these injections. So that's the end of the quote. My second pearl will be there's not always an obvious source of every patient with anaphylaxis. For example, there is this phenomenon called exercise-induced anaphylaxis. I'd be so bummed if I were allergic to exercise, but some people might really have an excuse for not staying in shape, at least until an allergist figures out the trigger, because it sounds like cases are related to what you ate before exercise. Therefore, digging deeper into the history is crucial in certain cases of anaphylaxis. Often, these folks can safely eat an allergenic food like shrimp without a problem, but if they eat the shrimp and then exercise, they get into real trouble. So it's a two-hit event. The science as to why it happens is not totally worked out, but factors like increased gastric permeability that happens during exercise are some of the considerations. Anaphylaxis without a trigger can also be the rare disease mastocytosis or something you're just not thinking about like latex glove exposure. My third pearl is that the onset of anaphylaxis can be variable, but fast onset anaphylaxis is the most terrifying. There's a well-written paragraph that summarizes this in the textbook Allergies, Principles, and Practice 5th edition that is well worth me reading, so I'm going to quote them. Symptoms usually begin within 5 to 30 minutes when antigen has been administered by injection. However, there can be delay of an hour or more. When antigen has been ingested, symptoms usually begin within the first two hours after ingestion, but can be delayed in onset for several hours. It should be noted, however, that the onset of symptoms can occur immediately after ingestion, and such rapid events can be fatal. There is believed to be a direct correlation between the immediacy of onset of symptoms and the severity of a given attack. The more rapid the onset, the more severe the episode. And that's the end of that quote. My fourth pearl. When using epinephrine, you can give it subcutaneous or intramuscularly, but remember that when you give it subcutaneously, there is a local vasoconstrictor action at the subcutaneous site of injection. That's why we often add epinephrine to local anesthetics like lidocaine in certain situations. The lidocaine action is prolonged when you decrease local blood flow into the tissue, Therefore, absorption is slower subcutaneous than it is intramuscularly. So, if you feel a delay in absorption and slower response will be too dangerous for your patient, it makes sense to use the intramuscular route instead of the subcutaneous route. My fifth pearl. If somebody with asthma looks to be in severe distress with intense bronchospasm, you absolutely must keep anaphylaxis in the differential diagnosis. Severe status asthmaticus may indeed actually be anaphylaxis. If you give them epinephrine, you will save their life. What if you're wrong and it's severe asthma not from anaphylaxis? That's still probably okay. As I was reading about epinephrine in the pharmacology textbook, 
They also mention the benefits of epinephrine used in cases of severe asthma because it relaxes the bronchial muscles. And it sounds like, before my time of practice, epinephrine seemed to be used more often in severe asthma cases. My sixth and final pearl is about patients taking beta blockers. And when they get anaphylaxis, it requires some further consideration in our treatment. There's an April 27, 1984 Journal of American Medical Association article titled Epinephrine for Treatment of Anaphylactic Shock, which raises the concern that you may get unopposed alpha stimulation when giving epinephrine to patients on beta-blocking medication, and the results could be harmful. A very recent article titled Anaphylaxis Recognition and Management in the November 15, 2011 journal called American Family Physician also raises concerns that patients on beta blockers may have a blunted response to epinephrine, but they also provide a very reasonable attempt at a solution, which is to try glucagon 5 milligrams intravenously. A great tip, as I have seen glucagon act superlatively in beta blocker overdoses, and it makes sense it could be great in this situation as well. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast, and if you're like me, you often get in the mail advertisements for CD-ROMs and CDs and MP3s, often charging over $1,000 for review of topics and review courses in internal medicine and hospital-based medicine. One of the reasons I do this podcast is I believe as a profession, we should be bouncing ideas and giving information to each other, often for free. Another reason I do this podcast is when I have paid money for certain MP3s and CDs, I didn't think the quality was all that great. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But either way, I figured I would take matters into my own hands and try and make a podcast that is free, available, and easy to understand. If you feel that is the case, please go to iTunes and write me a review today. Have a great day.